0: I was born in a little town called Hope, Arkansas. I like being able to fire people who provide services to me. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House!
1: Welcome to Campaign Context, an interdisciplinary election podcast. My name is Oscar Winberg. I'm a Ph.D. candidate in history at Old Blockademy University, working on modern American political history. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the John Morton Center, for North American Studies at the University of Turku. For this episode, Professor Graham Dodds joins me to discuss the past and present of executive orders. Dodds is an associate professor in political science at Concordia University. He holds degrees from University of Pennsylvania, Columbia University, and University of California, Irvine. Dodds' first book is on the history of presidential directives and is called "Take Up Your Pen, Unilateral Presidential Directives in American Politics. His work has also appeared in numerous journals, including American Review of Politics and Canadian Review of American Studies, and edited collections like the Obama Presidency, a preliminary assessment. Professor Dodds also has experience from the public sector, having worked as legislative assistant on Capitol Hill. I'm happy to welcome you to Campaign Context, Professor Dodds.
0: Happy to be here with you.
1: So let's start off with the most basic question. What is an executive order?
0: You know, it's the most basic question, but it's sort of a tough one because it doesn't really have an official definition. Um, Executive orders are one of over two dozen different types of what I like to call unilateral presidential directives. They're similar and, in a sense, legally identical to proclamations. They're also very similar to presidential memoranda. But whatever labels or names we want to use, these are directives, tools written documents through which the president can direct much of what the federal government does.
1: Right. And so there's been a lot of outcry lately and discussion on these directives on executive orders, particularly that word has come up again and again. Uh, And it's often following partisan divides where the one side who's not in the White House decries them and the other side sort of defends them. We've seen this over the past decades, but the history of these directives is far longer. Could you talk about how they emerged as a powerful and also contested tool of the presidency?
0: Yeah, this is a a big question. I mean, executive orders are not provided for by the U.S. Constitution. Nowhere in there does it say the president will have this authority Nevertheless, they've been essentially read into it or accepted as a legitimate constitutional appropriate tool for presidents. And a lot of my research was dedicated to how did this come to be? How did it come to be that the president can unilaterally make legally binding policy without Congress? After all, in the United States, there's the president at the head of the executive branch and then. Congress, the legislature, the House and Senate, they're in charge of legislating. And if the president can effectively legislate without the legislature, well, why don't we have a king and just go home? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, how did this come to be? And uh, it is a long, long story in my interpretation. I I break it up into what I would call two uh, preconditions to the development of executive orders and then four historical stages of that development. Shall we go through those both? Yes, please. Okay, so in my view, at least, the preconditions to the development whereby presidents can use these things for all sorts of important and controversial purposes, there are two of them. There's the vagueness of the constitutional text, and then secondly, how it's been authoritatively interpreted by the U.S. judiciary, especially the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, the U.S. Constitution claims to be the oldest governing constitution in the world, um, but it's also incredibly short and vague. Um, those two things may or may not be related, but when it comes to executive <laughs> power, Article 2 of the Constitution, you know, it describes the office of what is essentially the most powerful person on the planet. And half of it is given over to how one becomes president, the, the mechanism for election and succession. So you have only a few hundred words on what this person actually gets to do. And there are these sort of vague phrases that suggest, gee, he might be able to do all sorts of things, but it's ambiguous, it's just open ended so it's come to the Supreme Court and other courts to decide what exactly does that entail and in my research I describe a series of otherwise obscure early court cases in which courts end up looking at executive orders and other documents and they uh, basically say over time indirectly "Hmm, nowhere in the Constitution does it say presidents can do this but it seems like it's okay at least in this context And these Precedents build and build such that by the mid to late 1800s, courts have said, yes, in a whole variety of policy areas, it's appropriate for presidents to issue executive orders. So with those two preconditions satisfied, presidents over the years have made various use of these things. And uh, pretty much every president has issued one or another, even presidents who are in office for a very short time have found uh, in executive orders a very Convenient means to all sorts of different ends.
1: So, uh, as you mentioned, by the late 19th century, the tradition was already there. Uh, could you talk about the Emancipation Proclamation, which is perhaps the most famous of these presidential directives, and and the sort of the contested nature of that proclamation?
0: Right. So, uh, in my interpretation, the first sort of step or phase or era of presidents using executive orders and similar directives is pretty much everything before the 20th century. Hmm. And a lot of these have been lost throughout the years. We don't have a full record of all the orders that were issued up until the 20th century. And in part for that reason, most people tend to think there was not much going on. And there is some truth to that generalization, but there are some real exceptions. There are a handful of proclamations that are so famous, they're known by name, and you pick the most famous of them, the Emancipation hmm. Proclamation. So it is the exception to the rule that pre-20th century presidents did not do much unilaterally. And, you know, the rejoinder is, well, what about the Emancipation Proclamation? Here's Abraham Lincoln unilaterally unilaterally freeing the slaves, ending slavery, solving this dilemma that had plagued the United States for decades. Um, You know, why couldn't this have happened earlier on? And well, that's nice to get that out of the way. We can all just move on now. Um, It's an interesting directive. It's obviously very important historically. Uh, It's interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, Abraham Lincoln is well known for his rhetorical skills, being a great speech giver. But when you read the Emancipation Proclamation, it's frankly kind of badly written. If it were an undergraduate paper, it would get a bad grade because it's all these qualifications and insofar as this then this. And I think at the end of the day, the sense to make of it is that this was not a great moral condemnation of slavery as a monstrous evil, but rather saying, in order to win the Civil War, we need to free the slaves and the places that have not yet been reconquered by the North, those slaves will be freed. And It's just kind of a messy thing to read through, Uh, but the point is it was a a sort of war measure. It was intended to move along the Civil War uh, more to do that than really to condemn slavery as a great historical evil. And Lincoln was afraid it was going to be reversed. Uh, Executive orders can be reversed by Congress, by the courts, by future presidents. He was very worried the Supreme Court would strike it down. Uh, Now, as it turns out, the courts did not. And of course, it was enshrined in constitutional amendments after the Civil War. But uh, it is certainly, I think, the most famous uh, of the pre-20th century uh, executive orders or proclamations.
1: And there's sort of a funny history, it seems, where these great presidents like Lincoln, uh, but also Teddy Roosevelt and then later FDR, these transformative presidents, got much of their agenda through by uh, unilateral presidential directives rather than what we would think to be the normal way Congress and negotiating and, and sort of that LBJ myth where the master of the Senate and, and trying to, to work with Congress. Um, could you talk about the early 20th century and, and how Roosevelt utilized the executive order and, and sort of changed a bit how it was perceived?
0: Yeah, in my interpretation, the, the dawn of the 20th century, Teddy Roosevelt is really the turning point in the history of the evolution of executive orders. I, I have a chapter called Roosevelt and the Rise of Executive Orders because uh, he finds in executive orders just an incredible, uh, in a great means to many ends. Uh, Roosevelt comes in um, through a, a quirk of political history. An anarchist assassinates President McKinley, thereby ushering into power his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, who was the biggest fan of a big activist government that the country had arguably ever seen. It was a very poorly thought out uh, political murder, I think it's fair to say. (laughs) But Roosevelt is a progressive. He wants to change all sorts of things. He has a vision of the president at the vanguard of an activist government. He wants government to do more. He wants the president to do more. And he finds that executive orders will help him to get all that. So he issues a host of these things. Um, he issues so many that they decide they need to start keeping better track of them. And some of these are overturned. Some are overturned. Uh, for example, he uses an executive order to redesign U.S. coins by getting rid of the motto, in God we trust. Now, can we imagine if Barack Obama had done that in the early 21st century? People would have said, I knew he was a a Muslim, an atheist, something, I don't know. But this is, you know, 100 years before that, and it was monstrously uh, controversial, incredibly controversial. Um, But he succeeds in lots of other directives. He uh, uh, uses these to institute all sorts of governmental regulations in all sorts of areas for for really kind of the first time. and he serves only about seven and a half years in office, but in that time he issues about as many as all of his predecessors combined and In my telling at least, it's not just a fluke of his oversized personality, which he certainly had, but rather um it becomes entrenched and institutionalized such that all subsequent presidents can easily are politically able to use these things for whatever purpose they want, and even People who follow TR, like his hand picked successor Taft, who allegedly adhere to a more traditional 18th century reserved conservative mode, still issue a ton of these things for all sorts of purposes. Um, the big controversy between TR and Taft is environmental, uh, uh, not just regulation, but reserving public lands um, for future generations by unilateral directive. And Roosevelt issues. A ton of these to reserve, a ton of land. Uh, one of my favorite stories, he reserves so much land that that presidents in the Pacific Northwest, excuse me, senators in the Pacific Northwest say, the president has reserved so much of our states, we're losing control of our ridings, our states here. Uh and they attach a rider to a bill that he has to sign, which would prevent him from reserving any more lands. And in the ten days the president has to sign that measure he issues 21 executive orders to reserve all the land that he then, after signing his signature, could no longer reserve, but they were already reserved, if you follow. So yes. incredible gamesmanship. And uh, this continues throughout the early 20th century. And uh, the practice does really get entrenched, though. So um, whether you are a uh, an activist reformer or, or a do-nothing conservative, you still find in executive orders a very attractive means to do whatever you want.
1: Right. And then, of course, the, the other... Roosevelt, Franklin Bill and Roosevelt uh, in the 1930s, he runs into a brick wall with much of his New Deal uh, in terms of the courts overturning his his policies, uh, then this is sort of a forgotten part of, of the New Deal uh, in, in sort of the intro courses to American history that it wasn't just a slam dunk, him coming in on a landslide and getting it all done. How important was executive orders for the New Deal and his agenda? I think
0: it's very important. I mean, you you could see how progressive presidents like the two Roosevelts or Woodrow Wilson would want to do more, and if they couldn't get legislation, they would turn to executive orders. But even when these folks could get Congress to largely do what they wanted, they still found a lot to do unilaterally by executive orders. So... Yeah, even though um, FDR was in some measure successful getting a lot of the New Deal through uh, Congress, he still did an awful lot unilaterally, in part to create the, what we call the sort of alphabet soup of federal agencies, bureaus, departments to regulate the economy uh, and, you know, turn from the, the Great Depression. Um, a lot of those were created unilaterally. Now, later they got legislative sanction. Um, So he did an awful lot unilaterally in the New Deal and uh, with World War II as well. Now, some of that, I think, is to be expected insofar as the president is the commander-in-chief and he could perhaps use executive orders to further the military campaign. But even less um, overtly militaristic aspects of the war efforts uh, were often by executive order, most famously, or infamously, the internment of Japanese Americans, some 100,000 Japanese Americans, most of whom were citizens, were rounded up and put in so-called concentration camps in the West Coast and elsewhere because uh, the sense was that their loyalty was suspect, they couldn't be counted on, depended on. So, um, you know, nowadays this is seen as a a great monstrous evil, something to be apologized for, compensated for, but that was an executive order.
1: So, Should we under, how should we understand the executive order in relation to this growing power of the presidency, perhaps especially after World War II, which has been the rise of of the White House as the power center in US politics has been quite enormous almost. Uh, What role does direct, directives and, and presidential orders play in this?
0: I think it plays a very big role. Um, When you have this incredibly powerful tool, um, it really does enhance the power of the presidency enormously. And insofar as executive orders um, mean that the president is directing the executive bureaucracy, well, after World War II, you have an enormous executive bureaucracy to direct. So it's just that much more opportunity for the use of this particular tool. Um, Now, the counts of executive orders have declined in number um, since World War II, but I, I think that's due to a, a few sort of uh, uh, small quirks. And even if their overall number is down, there's still a lot of these things uh, from the mid 20th century to today for very important and controversial purposes. And increasingly, presidents are are using other directives, other than executive orders, um, to get their way. I mean, one of the funny stories about FDR is he issues so many executive orders, the government loses count of them. You can't even keep track of them. There's so many, and. Uh, court case goes up to the Supreme Court and at the last second the government has to withdraw its case because it turns out there was an executive order everybody forgot about and nobody did anything wrong. After that they try to keep track of these and if it's an executive order or a proclamation it has to be published in the Federal Register. But guess what? If you don't call it that, it doesn't have to be published. So presidents are increasingly using so-called presidential memoranda instead. But again, it's just an enormously powerful tool. And in eras of gridlocked government where Congress doesn't want to go along with the president from a different party, sure, you would want a law, ideally, but failing that an executive order is a, a pretty close second place.
1: So LBJ in the 60s, following the landslide election in 64 in against Goldwater, where also Congress was overwhelmingly democratic. Uh, now, Johnson had... F- enough experience from Congress to know that this wouldn't last, and this is his moment, uh, as captured by a previous guest of this podcast, Julian Selliser, in his book, The Fierce Urgency of Now. Uh, Now, Johnson was very aware of this limited window he had to get things done. Uh, In your research, do you see a pattern where uh, executive orders rise in the second term of the presidency, and especially during uh, opposing parties in Congress?
0: I think there's something to that, but it's hard to tell because not all executive orders are important. A lot of them are kind of mundane administrative minutia that perhaps doesn't matter so much after all. So when you just look at the raw numbers, I think you have to be careful with how you – some should count more than others, put it that way. So you can't just say, oh, you know, in the second term there's twice as many or something like this. Um, there are certain tendencies, I would say, though. I mean, presidents like to issue a lot of these early on to sort of make their mark. Sometimes they're promised in the course of presidential campaigns. If elected, I will issue an executive order doing such and such. Well, mm-hmm. now you're elected, so you have to do that. It's also the case in recent decades that a lot of presidents issue a lot of them early on in their administration to reverse policies that their predecessor had enacted by executive order. So there are a couple policy areas where. These things go back and forth every time the presidency changes from Republican to Democrat or vice versa. So policies about uh, abortion and the so-called Mexico City policy can, can uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars be used to fund uh, family planning groups in the developing world that include education about abortion as a portion of uh, their their educational mission um, or organized labor Uh, you know can you um, object as a member of an organized uh, as a union to your, your union dues being used for political purposes you don't agree with these things go back and forth every four to eight years so there's a tendency to see a lot of them but they're kind of symbolically tied to these couple uh, issues that groups within the two parties care very much about so a little bit at the beginning uh, for those reasons and there's also i think a tendency to see some at the end at the end of a presidency uh, you know there's going to be no more big legislation it's sort of about securing your your place your legacy in the history books and one way to do that is to have executive orders, especially, for example, to create national monuments that will be there when your, your great-grandchildren are roaming the earth, oh. and they'll say, oh, you know, this president reserved this, and wasn't he terrific? Um, so there are certain tendencies, but again, I, I think you have to be careful just looking at the raw numbers, because not all executive orders are, are created equal. Not all of
1: them are uh, as controversial, as important uh, as some are. Right, right. Uh, so what role does then... This hyperpartisan division that we've seen basically since the late since the 1990s, uh, what how did that change not only executive orders and directives and how they were issued but how they were received and I'm thinking especially perhaps of of the rise of conservative media and how Barack Obama's Uh, executive orders were met with outcries and calls of tyranny and and the presidency as sort of a monarchy. Uh, Can you talk about this development? Sure.
0: My own take on it is that um, executive orders and unilateral directives more broadly, it's a topic that um, over the last, say, 20 years, more and more people have started to pay attention to. And, And I have in mind chiefly scholars, researchers like myself, but also I think journalists, um, politicians and the American public. And in my mind, at least, this really got going late in Bill Clinton's second term, um, where a lot of conservatives started to say, boy, this guy's doing so much. And uh, in particular, they were angered by some of his late term directives, uh, proclamations for new national monuments. They just found this really bothersome. Now, those voices that were so critical of Bill Clinton then got rather quiet when George W. Bush became president, and all of a sudden it was the other team. It was liberals, Democrats who were complaining during the, the war on terror and other issues, and of course those people then got kind of quiet with Barack Obama, and it was uh, the old Clinton critics back eight years later saying, oh, hes it's a new king, he's a dictator, we've never seen anything like this before, and there were a lot of those complaints in conservative media during the Obama administration. I, I think by... Any objective measure, though, Obama's use of executive orders and other devices was restrained. It was certainly within the norms of the last several presidents. And uh, he's sort of a unique one because he was getting criticized uh, from the left for not issuing more of Mm. these things. So when your partisan uh, uh, supporters are saying you're not doing enough, that rather suggests your partisan critics are going a little bit overboard, I think. Mm. Um, And, you know, he just. Uh, They did not really fit his personality. Executive orders can be kind of standoffish, very aggressive, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, better or worse, that was not Obama's uh, sort of political M.O. That wasn't in his DNA. He um, did not seek to be combative or confrontational. Um, Now, the current president, it seems, has a different view of those matters. I think it's fair to say a different sensibility and uh, would not have some of the reservations that uh, Obama had.
1: And of course, immediately when Donald Trump came into the White House, not only did he issue executive orders and stuff he'd promised on the road, uh, stuff like the ones you mentioned earlier, which comes always when the White House changes from one party to the other. uh, But it seemed that he were issuing them in a rather in a rush manner and, and getting a lot of them out there and getting controversial stuff out there. Now, some of these fulfilled, or seemed to deliver on campaign promises without much substantial change. Uh, In fact, they were more political theater. Uh, Can you talk about to what degree the executive order is used as political theater and when that change happened?
0: I I agree with your assessment of some of Mr. Trump's directives. He's issued in his first 50 days about uh, three dozen of these things, give or take. Um, But uh, there's something unusual to my mind about them. Usually executive orders are issued to make policy. Now, there is a history of some uh, some unilateral directives being used for just Oh, symbolic or or uh, uh, rhetorical reasons. Usually, those are proclamations for things like National Square Dance Week or National Cheese Awareness Month. Silly things mm-hmm. like this that nobody really cares about. But usually, with executive orders, they are issued to really make policy. And to my mind, at least, some of Donald Trump's early executive orders weren't so much about making policy, rather just about sort of signaling a position, uh, if you will, giving the sense that change was happening when in reality nothing was. So for example, he issued an executive order about Obamacare, instructing states and other political actors not to enforce the Affordable Care Act if it was too expensive to do so. But what exactly does that mean? What is that actually telling anyone to do specifically? And I think the answer is nothing, but it is important symbolically so he can say, look, I've spoken out against it and sort of throwing down a marker indicating that he he wants to and he intends to try to get it repealed. But of course, that can only happen legislatively. And that's the thing about executive orders. They're enormously powerful, but um, you can't just do anything you want by executive order. There are really important things that can be done only by Congress. Uh, like it or not, at the end of the day, for big policies like Obamacare, you need Congress. And Congress is hard to get anything done. It's always been the case, almost always. But that's how real big policies happen. And executive orders can try to circumvent that. They can try to prompt it. But they can't altogether replace the real policymaking process. You can't altogether get rid of Congress, for better or worse.
1: <laughs> right. So you mentioned earlier that uh, these directives have always been challenged by Congress, by the courts. Uh, during Obama, uh, sorry, during Trump's presidency, the ACLU very vocally became sort of identified as this safeguard against, especially against executive orders from the White House and and see you in court became something of a modern political catchphrase. Uh, Can you talk about the history of challenging executive orders and how we're going to see that happening now under Trump with his approach to the executive order?
0: Good. Yeah. I I mean, again, I've, I've indicated that they're an enormously powerful presidential tool within certain limits. But in reality, um, they can be reversed. They can be reversed by future presidents, as we're seeing now. Um, They can be reversed by Congress, and they can be reversed by the courts. And um, there are times when Congress has reversed an executive order, but it almost never happens. Um, It's very hard for a majority of the 435 members of the House, plus a majority or perhaps a supermajority of the Senate, maybe 60 senators, To get on the same page and act, it is much easier for a president to pull out a piece of paper, a cocktail napkin, and a crayon and make law unilaterally. And that's the thing about executive orders, they give an advantage to the first mover. It's easier to act than it is to react. Mm -hmm. And Congress can reverse these, but they have a heck of a time doing it, and they almost never do. So look at the other branch then, the judiciary. The courts can certainly strike these down as being unconstitutional or for various other reasons, and from time to time they have, but there again the numbers are are low. Uh, The courts almost never really strike down an order in perpetuity in entirety. Um, You can almost count them on one hand and have a few fingers left because it really seldom happens. The big example uh, would have been uh, in the Truman administration when he nationalizes the steel industry to avert a strike, to avert a a stoppage, a supply stoppage in the midst of the Korean War. And um, uh, the Supreme Court strikes that down saying, no, you've done exactly what congressional law says you cannot do. You can't do this. So it's struck down. And this happens with Bill Clinton as well. Um, But it's just very rare that the courts will do this. And in part, Um, I think it's because the courts try to avoid the so-called political questions. If it's something that can Mm -hmm. be determined by the two more overtly political branches, uh, Congress and the president, then courts are kind of inclined to let them fight it out. So, you know, for people looking at Trump's directives thinking, how are we going to stop this? Yeah, maybe Congress, but I wouldn't count on it, especially since both chambers are controlled by Republicans at the moment. Maybe the courts. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, his first uh, of the two now uh, orders on this uh, sort of uh, travel ban, refugee ban um, was struck down or at least, you know, temporarily, temporarily halted. But um, as Trump has discovered, if you just keep issuing a slightly revised version of this, you can move at uh, lightning speed, whereas the, the courts move very slowly. And if you really want to push it, he can do an awful lot unilaterally and just dare the other branches to try to keep up and they'll have a heck of a time doing
1: so. Hmm. So as we talked about the numbers of executive orders, not necessarily revealing the whole truth, uh, the media still seems to focus a lot on numbers of the executive orders. And, And we've seen during Trump's early days that this is a approach that he's comfortable with perhaps owing to his background not in politics but in in business uh is the use of executive orders on the rise now with Donald Trump uh, and what happens if he becomes a president that uses executive orders in to the to a new degree will that set a precedent sort of akin what we saw uh, in the last century
0: you know, I, I have to tell you that where Mr. Trump is concerned, I've given up trying to make predictions because he has upended so much of the conventional wisdom, uh, proven so many people wrong so many times, myself included, frankly, mm-hmm. that I'm reluctant to hazard any guesses about what this guy's going to do from day to day. Having said that, um, it is possible, as you suggest, that he might find in executive orders a new best friend and, you know, use these things in greater numbers and for greater uses than anyone in quite some time. Um, We'll see how that goes. I mean, to get a lot of the things done that he wants to get done, he does need Congress to go along. If Congress proves recalcitrant as it may well, then he will be tempted to do it unilaterally insofar as he's able um, but, you know, there is a cost to going to executive orders exclusively in terms of making big policies, and you tend to be seen as a dictator. You tend to be seen as an autocrat. Um, I think that, frankly, this was one of George W. Bush's many problems, perhaps not top of the list, but it contributed to this sense that, boy, this guy doesn't deliberate. He just makes decisions quickly and he imposes his will on others, even when they, they would be happy to negotiate a, a compromise. Um there's a cost to that sort of action, and um, you know you'll see it certainly from the president's partisan detractors, just as uh, Obama saw it from his. So yeah, liberals will be very quick to say, "Oh, he's being autocratic." We haven't seen this since I don't know when. Um, conservatives may take longer to come around to that point of view, but you know Congress uh, does believe it is an equal voice, or should be an equal voice, and should be consulted, and should have the primary say in legislating, and if even a president trump a fellow republican were to circumvent them and just do everything unilaterally there'd be a real political price to pay
1: exactly so uh, a final note here uh, the executive order and, and appearing as a tyrant in united states politics of course monarchs are seen as as the automatic bad guy going back to to the british uh, so uh, will the use of executive orders then – have have they worked and could they work as a rallying cry for the opposition when it comes to the ballot box?
0: They might. They might. Um, I mean, these things can be used for narrow political purposes. Some people say that uh, in the Obama – excuse me, in the Clinton administration that he issued a number of these to really uh, excite narrow constituencies within the Democratic Party to get them to turn out – As you suggest, the opposite can be true. And it's always been thus. I mean, uh, in the 1960 campaign, uh, candidate uh, Kennedy said if elected, he would issue an executive order against um, uh, racially discriminated uh, housing in federally subsidized housing and you know once elected he didn't do that so people mailed in thousands of pens to the white house saying well you said you would do it per, and you have not perhaps you need a pen here please take mine mister president so yeah these things can certainly play into electoral politics and political campaigns um... but the thing to keep an eye on i think is the alternative to executive orders other unilateral presidential directives that might be harder to see Um, They're not executive orders per se. They're perhaps not as sexy or easier for the the, the media to catch on to, but they can be very important. And in particular, I think there's an effort by Mr. Trump and and Obama and others to try to use unilateral directives to really um, uh, engage with and to direct the regulatory states and the whole process of administrative law. If you can issue a directive that then forces the EPA to do something that's gonna be a binding policy, that's a way of entrenching your policy preferences more than if it were just an executive order per se. This stuff is hard to follow. I mean, you have to navigate all sorts of regulations within the mammoth bureaucracy. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but it is really important. And that's an area where I think uh, Mr. Trump may well have some success.
1: And have we seen any signs of his willingness to do this and also uh, the media's picking up on this or or are they picking up on this?
0: I think we are seeing some signs of this. I mean, Trump has so far issued a number of executive orders that aim at some sort of regulatory reform. He's issued one saying that uh, before government can enact a new regulation, it must do away with two old Mm -hmm. ones as a way of... uh, uh, winnowing down the administrative bureaucracy. Um, We'll see what that means when it actually comes to practice. Uh, Other um, sort of regulatory or administrative executive orders he's issued concern things like um, uh, trying to expedite environmental review for construction projects, for infrastructure projects, basically saying, look, we need to build things and we can't be held up by a bunch of environmental concerns. Yeah, obviously, this is going to have a big impact going forward if he's going to engage in big infrastructure spending. He's also said that he wants to review uh, regulations of the financial industry, these things that were put in place after the uh, the great downturn of uh, uh, 2008. And so, um, you know, is he going to get rid of Dodd-Frank? Is he just going to gut it if he's not going to get rid of it, sort of make it uh, toothless? Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps. So these are ways that you can really have a difference um, but kind of below-the-radar without calling people's attention to it.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for your time, Professor Dodds. Thanks very much. It was my pleasure. And I want to remind everybody that Professor Dodds' book is called Take Up Your Pen, Unilateral Presidential Directives in American Politics. Please visit the Campaign Context website at www.campaigncontext.wordpress.com for links to the book. There's also previous episodes on subjects such as the history of lobbying, the Democratic Party, and the conservative media. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help us out by spreading the word to friends and colleagues. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. You'll find links for this and more on the homepage. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.